Welcome to Threads of Enlightenment, your journey into personal growth. The splendor of any decision is after you've made it, all that remains to be seen are its consequences. My name is Ken Primus. I am your host. Here at Threads of Enlightenment, we talk about the principles of self-development and personal growth. By having conversation with people, who have walked through their journey of personal growth. We believe that everyone at some point in their life will have to deal with one or more of these principles to have the privilege of focusing on their self-development as humans. These principles, when applied, can help you to become the best self possible. Welcome to Threads of Enlightenment, your journey into personal growth. The splendor of any decision is after you've made it, all that remains to be seen are its consequences. My name is Ken Primus, I am your host. Here at Threads of Enlightenment, we talk about the principles of self-development and personal growth. By having conversation with people, who have walked through their journey of personal growth. We believe that everyone at some point in their life will have to deal with one or more of these principles to have the privilege of focusing on their self-development as humans. These principles, when applied, can help you to become the best self possible. Welcome to Threads of Enlightenment. As usual, once our guests uh, present, uh, I always tell them it is an honor and pleasure to have you here because I know what it takes to come and sit down and open your life to people to see and make yourself vulnerable once again so that we can want to say extract some wisdom and some tools that you use to get to where you are today. Leslie, I want to thank you for coming to Threads of Enlightenment. Tell the people all of the wonderful things that you have created, because I know and believe that we are all creators. Go ahead and tell them all. Uh, Well, Ken, first of all, thank you so much. And I just love the message that you're putting out there into the world, because I, I also believe you know, that we can become enlightened, not just in our own self, but we can share our enlightenment with others, which encourages them to become enlightened. Yes. Um, but, you, you know, you asked about what I've created. Well, recently I've written now six books because I just recently released Zombie Siege, and I know that sounds <laughs> totally crazy. Uh, <laughs> but my first book was You Can't Eat Love, and it's really the... Um, it's about how learning to love yourself can help you change your relationship with food. And mm-hmm. it's not a diet book. It's really the the discoveries that I made on a journey to learning to love myself. Um, and that discovery actually led to a whole lot of other things because 
I don't know about you, but what I realized is as a consequence of, you know, how I grew up, my life and and the the choices and and opportunities I had, I didn't know how to love myself. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I learned that, that things really started to change in my uh, heart, soul, and spirit, and even my mind started opening up to opportunity. Now, in the midst of all of that, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I've got three amazing boys, they've got three amazing wives, um, and I have uh, a, a dog and, let's see, four or five grand dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I, uh, I have been so excited to be able to share with people that learning to love yourself, while it can be scary, there there is no need to be afraid because you're not yeah. doing it alone. Yeah, uh, fear kills daily, they say, but we die once. So um, I think um, I always mention to people, beyond the fear is where you need to get to because that's where your blessings are. Um, Leslie, I want you to talk about your upbringing, because I believe that we are programmed uh, with imperfect people. They're coming from trauma. Every single person on this planet has been traumatized to some degree. And based on that, it formulates how you look at the world, how you deal with people, how you deal with yourself, first of all. And based from that um, uh, perspective that you you're coming from, you then um, uh, teach your children, bring your family up within that frame. Talk to me a little about your family upbringing and uh, some of the insights there. Well, first of all, I'm the oldest of six children, and the youngest one is eight years younger than I am. So that's a pretty packed family right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my mother grew up in a family um, where her parents really were not emotionally available. And because she grew up in in a home of privilege, they were also a lot of times not physically available. Yeah. Uh, they were left, you know, to the maids and things like that. So um, in, in, in raising her own family, while she could be a kind and caring person, she really was not emotionally available to us. Uh, my father, um, grew up in a family where his brothers were 18 and 19 years older than he was. And while, yes, it was, you know, 180 degrees from where my mother grew up, uh, once he got into my mother's world, he liked, you know, how, how you lived in that world. Um, so he became emotionally unavailable also. Uh, and then you throw in the fact that we moved to Venezuela when I was about six years old and we lived down there for about five or six years, for about five years. Uh, and the maids raised us. I mean, I'll be very honest. The maids raised us. If you yeah. wanted to find our mother, you would go to the country club and she was either in the country club or she was out on the golf course. So I, I grew up not really having a relationship with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very much a, um, you know, seen to be, be seen and not heard. Yeah. And I, I very distinctly recall, um, right after we found out, well, okay, we, my parents sent us, sent the three oldest ones to the States for vacation. 
And then mm-hmm. we found out towards the end of vacation, we would not be returning home. Instead, we would be remaining in the U.S. and living here. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to any of my friends. Um, I didn't get a chance to, you know, to see my home for the last time or anything like that. And that was very, very upsetting and disturbing to me. And I remember uh, crying one night. My mother came in and she said, well, wh- what is wrong? And I told her and she said, oh, you know, you'll get over it. Mm. And that truly is one of my first big memories of how dismissed my feelings and emotions were in my family. So what I realized retrospectively is we were taught that you you didn't feel what you really felt. Mm. And to dismiss what you were really feeling. Well, let me tell you what happens. When when we as human beings stuff down our genuine emotions, what we are really feeling and what we are denying ourselves, then it starts coming out sideways. And yeah. that's when I realized I started turning to what I call my drug of choice, which yeah. is food. Mm-hmm. Because the pain becomes so great that you've got to do something to release that pressure. Yeah. And I was telling somebody the other day, When we say to someone, you shouldn't feel certain way, or that's not how you, you know, you should be feeling, or we deny that somebody's feelings are are real, we're saying to them, for example, you're wearing a black shirt right now. Mm -hmm. We're saying to them, your shirt is really yellow. And you're Mm -hmm. like, what? What? My shirt is black. No, no, it's yellow. And you get enough people who are also telling you not to feel a certain way or you shouldn't feel a certain way, also telling you that your shirt is yellow. You begin to doubt that your shirt is black. So then you go into a crowd of people who are acknowledging and they say, oh, I really like your black shirt. And you're like, wait, what? It's yellow. It's not black. Mm -hmm. So that sets up that cognitive dissonance inside of us. And there's a lot of tension. Yeah, yeah. And we have to do something to release that tension. And what I realized is food as my drug of choice Yeah, was how I helped release that tension. Yeah, that tension has to go somewhere. And I've talked and I've said it, uh, it'll manifest in either diseases that we, we uh, have in our bodies or behaviors that we have as individuals and um uh, whatever habit, uh, whatever that uh, tool that we utilize to deal with it, uh, we're going to have to deal with it. And so, you know, it it is uh, true. And I know uh, uh, eating and food is one of those. So here you are, you've uh, uh, been actually taken away from your friends, some form of security there uh, within uh, that uh, and familiarity with, with the kids and your your uh, friends brought into the state. Um, how did it internally um, make made you feel as an individual? I know you mentioned briefly a little, but how did you feel when that happened, because I know something when I, uh, the reason I'm asking is because I, when I came to the United States of America, I had to make some adjustments. So um, how did it make you feel as an individual? Well, I felt very much like a fish out of water um, mm. because even though we moved back to Houston, which is where I originally was from, yeah. um, 
I, I spoke two languages quite easily. I could flip between Spanish and English. I was 100% bilingual. Yeah. I did not have a Texas accent. I still do not have a Texas accent. I do not say y'all. I cannot stand how the word feels <laughs> in my mouth. I say you guys. Um, <laughs> and, and my experience was so much bigger than, yeah. than most other people. Plus, during that time, which was in the 60s, late, 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 almost 70s when we moved back, I had missed the entire civil rights movement. I had missed, you know, the Vietnam War. So, but I had been aware of people who lacked. Yeah. I had seen, you know, children who had no shoes, no clothes, and whose stomachs were distended as a consequence of malnourishment. I had been exposed to far more things than, you know, the people here in, in my immediate environment in the States had been exposed to. I was accepting of people regardless of where they came from, yeah, yeah, which was totally unlike what I was experiencing, you know, here in yeah. the in the U.S. So I felt very much, you know, you talk about square pegs, round holes. I I didn't fit, mm-hmm. and I really struggled to fit. Mm-hmm. And when you're put into an environment where everybody is already connected, and you're trying to find your way in, it's almost like having a very tightly woven piece of cloth, and you're yeah. trying to punch a hole in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's extremely difficult to punch a hole in there. So that, and then on top of that, trying to express how I really felt and being heard, heard yeah, was uh, causing you know more problems. Yeah, and then you compound all of this stuff with. Um, the fact that my education down there had a lot of holes in it. Mm-hmm. So while I was advanced in some areas, I was way behind in other areas. Mm-hmm. And in spite of my being, you know, quite intelligent, you know, those things start catching up to you. Yeah. And so um, being, you know, the the child of an, uh, you know, an engineer and a, a mother who had graduated from Rice. Both my parents graduated from Rice University. Um, my inability, my lack of skill was not acceptable. Yeah. So I was told I was stupid. Yeah. Uh, and I grew up, you know, believing those yeah. things. So while my parents did the best job that they could, and that's part of my journey is mm-hmm. understanding and recognizing my parents did the best job they could with the skills that they had as yeah. a consequence of how they were raised. Right. Yep. So I forgive them. Yeah for the fact that they did not have the skills to raise me and care for me the way that I needed. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Today, now, I can learn to love myself exactly where I am, for who I am, and what I am able to do. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, that is, uh, and I'm getting to there. I wanted you to uh, stop here for a little while because I wanted you to get into some of those feelings that you deal with because it does shape how you behave and how you think. And when I came to America, uh, coming into the, um, I was in my second year in college. I was 12 years old. Um, I was put in junior high school. And I remember being in high school. I remember going to a doctor. We had a doctor's appointment and the doctor asked me, do I smoke grass? And I came out and I told, I told my mother, I said, we need to change doctor. This guy is asking me if I smoke grass. And I'm thinking grass, green grass. I don't know anything <laughs> about, you know, 
uh, weed or anything. And, and, um, I told her, I said, this doctor's out of his mind. I don't want to ever go back to this guy. I was that naive, um, because of the culture that I came from. And when I came to the United States, it was an absolute culture shock, the way they behaved to the teachers, the way they spoke back. I mean, all of it was just an incredible amount of adjustment that I had to make. And um, I know some of the things that they uh, made fun of me with. I still had my, my West Indian dialect and, and and all kinds of stuff. And so uh, that's why I want you to stop there for a little while and visit. So now here you are, you're moving. And uh, let's say um, college, uh, how did you take some of these uh, programmings that you receive as a young uh, girl into your uh, young adult life? Well, I, I didn't like who I was. So, uh, I mean, th this is how brilliant I was. Okay, mm -hmm. this, this is how brilliant I was. I didn't really like who I was, so I decided that I was going to quote unquote, reinvent myself. Mm -hmm. Now, what that meant, I have no idea, but I very distinctly recall deciding I was going to reinvent myself. Well, the How problem old were you, Leslie, when, <laughs> I was, you, when you made I was that? 17, 18. Okay. <laughs> I just turned 18 when I went to college. Uh -huh. uh, and, well, and, and also the rug had been pulled out from under my feet again because. Mm -hmm. The uh, my parents uh, moved to Alaska. They moved from Katy. I lived in in Katy, which is thirty miles west of downtown Houston, mm -hmm. and it was the longest I ever lived anywhere, which was five years. Um, because even though we lived about five years in Venezuela, we lived first on one side of Venezuela and then moved to the other side of Venezuela. So it was two places. Yeah. So anyway, we'd lived there for five years. I went through all of high school in one school. Um, I had, you know, established some friendships, relationships and things like this. Well, then my parents up and moved to Alaska. So wow. guess what? That means, you know, I have no place to come home to. Yeah you know, during wow. school. Yeah. So, okay, my parents move off and I'm like, okay, I'm going to reinvent myself. Well, how do you reinvent yourself really? Because, you know, <laughs> you're operating only from what you know. Yeah. So all I really did was fall <laughs> deeper into the dysfunction that I was already in. <laughs> And um, I, I'm struggling, but I mm -hmm. have nobody to talk to. And yeah. in addition to that, I don't trust people enough to really develop deep, deep, deep relationships. Yeah. So as a consequence, I have no sounding boards. I have no way to get, you know, somebody to say to me, um, if, after I share with them what I'm thinking, I don't have anyone to say, you know, you might want to rethink this. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so... How, how, um, when you said you're gonna, you, you have this distinct memory of reinventing yourself. And, um, do you remember what did you do to say, okay, I've started this reinvention? What, what did you, uh, gravitate to? Well, I'd, I'd always been, um, the, you know, the, the good girl, follow mm -hmm. the rules, the rule follower, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think that, I wanted to quit being such a rule follower. Yeah. Okay. So um, while I did not like drinking alcohol, I decided that that was the thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so I would go to the bars, you know, and drink, and you know, that that's just not a good idea. 
I also always had gone to bed at a certain hour of the night, and I decided, no, I was going to stay up until whenever I wanted to stay up till. <laughs> so I started doing that, and that also is not a very good idea. I'd also been, you know, one of these people who studied all the time and made really, mm-hmm. really good grades, graduated with honors and all this stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'd rather play and goof off than, than do all of that. Well, you know, that's not a good idea either. <laughs> so I'm doing all these things that are 180 degrees from who I really am. Yeah. And it did not feel good because it was not who I was. Yeah. Yeah. So it didn't how- line up with me. So you started to reinvent yourself. <laughs> it was an epic failure. <laughs> uh, and uh, as you said, you're going in a different uh, direction and you realize that it wasn't you. Um, once you began to realize this, did you take any steps to self-correct or did you just keep going um, because most of us, I remember when I had those, and then I just kept going, and then one day I, I crashed. And so <laughs> I'm trying to see if you're any different than me, Leslie, if you had a little more sense than me. Uh, or did you just well, No, I, I, didn't, I didn't have any more sense than you. But what mm. I did do was uh, the first semester was kind of in that direction, and I went home to Alaska for, mm-hmm. you know, 30, for a 30-day break at, at uh, Christmas time. Um, and I realized that what I had been doing, just because I removed myself from the environment, um, I realized what I'd been doing didn't feel good. Yeah. So the conversation I had with myself is let's get back to what does feel good. Let's get back, you know, to having a regular bedtime. Let's get back to, you know, doing some studying, let's get back to to doing these things. So when I returned, I worked my way back into doing that. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't still go out clubbing. I didn't still, you know, skip classes. I I still did those things, but not to the extreme that I had been. I wasn't staying up until 4 a.m. anymore. I was usually, you know, lights out about 10, 1030 at night. Um, but I still felt as if I was struggling to find out who I was. And truthfully, looking back during that time, uh, I was sliding into depression. Mm. And again, I didn't trust people. I still mm-hmm. struggle really to trust people. Yeah. Um, but I did. I really didn't trust people. I didn't have anybody that I could really talk to, I could really share with. And I say to anyone, if you're struggling with depression... Let's figure this out. Let's find someone that you can trust. Because truthfully, the only way out of depression is to start speaking about it Mm -hmm. and to start acknowledging this is what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. Because when we're stuffing down those feelings, that's when all that other stuff can start raging. Yeah. Um, Perfect. You brought me to the spot where I wanted it to be. Um, how did you begin your uh, self-discovery in the sense where you started looking at yourself to then begin to um, fall in love with who you are? Because I think it is one of the most important journey that anyone on this planet can ever, ever go. Because from that space, I believe we are able to manage anything and everything that comes into our life. So, Leslie, talk to me about when did those um, 
those lights, those little glimpses began to happen that you began to move towards uh, your journey of self-development. Well, we have to go back about 30, at this point in time, 38 years. Um, <clears throat> 38 years ago, my my mother died. Two weeks later, my first child, her first grandchild was born. A week later was my birthday. So that sent me down, you know, into a very deep, dark rabbit hole. And remember, I didn't have really any emotional support. My own family was destroyed. Yeah. So I was kind of thrown out there really far into the ocean. And um, my now ex-husband also didn't have the emotional capacity to be able to support me in that extreme grief. Okay, so we fast forward now, let's see, six, seven years ago, uh, my oldest son and his wife decided they didn't want to have a relationship with me for whatever reason. They had their first child, which would have been, which would be my first grandchild. So it sent me flying back Mm. 30 years prior. Yeah. Because I had never addressed the grief of losing my own mother. Yeah. And as I felt myself um, crashing, I had just a, a little tiny glimmer, a tiny, 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 tiny glimmer of light. And I said, okay, we can make a choice. We can keep sliding down into this mm-hmm. deep, dark place that you're going, or you can become the best version of yourself so that when they decide they want a relationship with you, you are the very best version of yourself and you can welcome them back with no strings attached. Yes. And I said, that means that I want to be, I want to be, not I must be, not I should be. I want to be the very best I can be physically, mentally, and emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started. So the easiest place to begin with that really is the physical part. Yeah. So I started looking at, you know, where I was and all of that. But truthfully, the real journey, the real work is when we make a decision that we want to be emotionally healthy. Yeah. Because it is from emotional health that we are able to overcome almost anything. Yeah. And I tell people now, if I would have known how hard the work was going to be, I don't know that I would have gone on the journey, but yeah. I am so grateful that I did. Yes, I, I tell people it is honestly, and we would be lying, Leslie, if we told them it would be easy. It is simply the hardest journey you would ever have to go on because it's messy because you have to look at yourself, but it is beautiful um, because you have to look at yourself. And so, well, and you have to start rewriting the tapes that are in your head, and you yes. have to start e- examining, you know, the beliefs that you hold. Yes, and you have to start looking at, you know, the hardwiredness of your being. Is this really serving me? Where is it really coming from? Yes, those are the questions you have. You have to ask because, as I mentioned, and I and I on the onset, we are programmed, and because we are programmed, it is a second nature. It is a behavior that uh, it is so uh, wrapped up into our belief system and all of our emotions and everything. And uh, we usually, I'd say to people, we'll take some of the trauma from our parents and we change it in a way where it's not recognizable, which allows us to behave in our crazy mind because we're like, no, I'm not like my parents or whatever, uh, because we have changed it from how we perceived it from our parents. But 
when someone is looking into us going, wow, they're nuts, but, you know, uh, they're just like their parents, and you and I will fight and tell them no. But um, it, it does happen, and you've got to dig deep into all of that and tear those things away. And within all of that, you have to accept yourself. You have to love yourself. And I tell people perfection is the most dangerous thing on this planet. There's no such thing as perfection, and everyone is chasing perfection in their body. They they work out a hundred times a day, and and then they have a heart attack walking down the street. It, it, it's it, because they're chasing this perfection that is in their mind. Um, what is really really good is present. To be present in yourself, and learn to accept yourself, and allow yourself. Uh, to forgive yourself. And as you begin to uh, start being kind to you, you'll be kind to me. But it's a beautiful journey. It's painful as heck. Um, but uh, when you look back several years later, <laughs> you're, you're smiling and laughing and, and, and appreciative of the dark places because now you can turn around, Leslie, and help someone hold their hands because they feel the same way that you felt when you were in that space. And so, as you said, it is a beautiful, but it's a painful place. But it's, I, I, you've got to go on it, guys. Just you've got to go on it. I can't say anything more. But, but, and the other thing that I um, explain to people, and I talk about this in the book, is when, when we, as an individual, recognize that we need to learn to love ourselves, what that means is we start establishing boundaries. Yes. Because truthfully, we teach other people how to treat us. But we also teach us how to treat us. Mm -hmm. So when we speak, you know, not nicely to ourselves and other people observe that, you know, they are thinking it's okay to not speak nicely to us because that's how we are treating ourselves. But what a lot of people don't recognize is, um, for example... For example, if you have freeways being constructed by you and they make you detour off of the freeway onto the feeder road and then you have to go down a side street and around, that's very, very uncomfortable mm -hmm. and you don't like it. But you do it because you have to, right? Because yeah. that's the way it goes. Well, when we start changing ourselves, the people around us are not getting a vote in what we are doing. Yeah. And as a consequence, we are forcing them off of the usual freeway down onto the feeder road on some side streets and then back around onto the freeway. And they don't like it. <laughs> so they start pushing back on us. Yeah. And this is where I say, you know, reach out, reach out, because so many times it's easier to retreat back to where you were. Yeah. Despite how strong your reason is to learn to love yourself it is easier to retreat back because the uncomfortableness of someone pushing against you as you are making the decisions, the choices, changing the path uh, can be so painful. And oftentimes, if we're not surrounded by at least one person who says, you know what, I believe in you, mm -hmm. you are enough just as you are. Let me listen to you. I'm here for you. I can hear what you're saying. I can only imagine all of those things. Then we can say, you know what? This is just too hard. I can't do it. I give up. I'm a failure. 
Yeah. And then people stop. They give up. And what happens then? What happens then is we continue, as you spoke about before, the generational issues continue Mm -hmm. instead of stopping with us. You need someone to hold your hands and to um, hold you accountable in a way to make the change. Um, uh, And you're holding them accountable, I believe, through encouragement, encouragement, you, you can do this, you know, you can do this. And, and it's not holding them accountable with a hammer over their head. It's just holding them accountable by holding their hands and encouraging them and says, I did it uh, because you're uh, from coming from a space of empathy. You're coming from a space of acceptance. You're coming, coming from a space of not judge. You're, you're not judging them. It's not a judgmental attitude. It's not a judgmental energy that you're uh, um, releasing. It is this space where they can feel comfortable and breathe and say, okay, I'll, I'll take the next step. I'll make, I'll take the next step. And it's a great place to be now when you look back, Leslie, when you, you're walking with someone um, to have that conversation and to see the smile on their face when they kind of know that they're not alone, that there's someone here that really, really cares uh, about the outcome for them because we want them to stand strong because there's a beauty about it, there's a loving of life within that standing uh, that is incredible, you know. Um, yeah. Well, in, and I ask people, you know, as they are as they are struggling, um, you know, to to do this, and they're sharing with me, okay, well, I I I went ahead and I ate, you know, a whole bag of chips, or I got into this argument, or whatever. I ask them, what is the payoff? Yeah. Because in every interaction that we have especially with other people. But think about this. Even when you have an interaction with yourself, there is a payoff. Mm-hmm. So I will ask them, you know, what is the payoff? And then they they need to really think about, well, what is the payoff? Yeah. Am I, uh, let's say I, I overeat something. The payoff could be shame. Yeah. And if we are taught that you should be ashamed, we are very comfortable with feeling ashamed. Yeah. If we are taught that you're not any good, we're very comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Now, those are not good things, but we are comfortable with them because that's what we know. Yes. So when we start looking at changing our behavior, we need to start changing our payoff. And yeah. I talk about in You Can't Eat Love, let's celebrate the tiny changes that you make, any tiny win, celebrate those tiny wins. Because what happens is that starts reinforcing those tiny wins. And then our brain wants more. And I encourage people to ignore, absolutely, totally, completely ignore any behavior that you do not want to continue. Hmm. Ignore it. And if you need to, forgive yourself. Yeah. I forgive myself. Of course, I ate that whole bag of chips. Of course, I got angry with that person. Of course, I said that about myself because I was feeling X, Y, Z. And let's start getting real and honest with our emotions. Yeah, forgiving the self is one of the best things you'll learn to do in your life. Um, Leslie, talk to me now. I know you're uh, the tool that you utilize to manage all of these things was eating and food. 
um, talk to me because once you fall in love with yourself, you learn, you want to, uh, you look at all aspects of yourself, spirit, soul, and body. Um, and how did you come about uh, uh, with the thought of writing the book? Because you you'd mentioned that uh, food was yours. Uh, um, how did that come about? What was the catalyst that said, "Yeah, I need to write that in a book and uh, and put that in the book"? What took place? Uh, well, the first two or three paragraphs of the book, I actually wrote two years before I ever sat down and, and wrote the book. Mm. Um, so those happened just as they are described, you know, in the paragraphs. But the reason that I went ahead and wrote the book was people kept asking me the same questions. Uh-huh. And I kept telling people the same stories. People would, <laughs> you know, share that they were struggling or something. I would say, look, you know, when you're driving down the, the freeway, and I live right off of I-10, which can get, you know, hugely jam-packed. Yeah. So, you know, when you're driving down I-10 and, you know, that you get into a traffic jam, do you park your car? Do you get out? Do you walk home? Well, no, that would be stupid. I say, okay, if you look at this journey that you're <laughs> going on in life as driving mm-hmm. down a freeway, yeah, you're on a road to somewhere, And you hit a traffic jam. A traffic jam is something in your life, you know, that causes you to come to a stop. It slows you down. It doesn't make any difference what you're doing. If you're trying to lose weight, if you're trying Mm -hmm. to build a relationship. I mean, let's, let's just think about it. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference. You want to load the dishwasher, run the dishwasher so you can have clean dishes and you don't have any dishwasher soap. That's a traffic jam, right? Yeah. Do you pitch the whole dishwasher out? (laughs) No. No, you solve the problem, right? So I would say to people, while you're on this journey, let's solve the problem. What do you do when you're in a real life traffic jam? You change the radio, you call a friend, you know, you've got a whole list of things that you do. But what you don't do (laughs) is park your car, get out and walk home. So let's start using the skills that you have already developed and apply them to the other areas of your life and recognize, accept, acknowledge there will be traffic jams in my life. And let's start making plans and let's start practicing, Mm -hmm. practicing, got that, for those traffic jams so that when we hit those traffic jams, we are better equipped than we would be if we had not practiced. Yes. Condition response, I keep telling people, your practice is to give you a conditional response so that you, when it does happen, you are responding because you have programmed yourself to respond a certain way versus the other. And so it is a practice is a part of living. And um, that's the fun part. But some people, I keep telling them, personal growth is not for lazy people. It is, uh, it is, you can't be lazy and be interested in personal growth. There's no way I don't see it. You know, it's hard work. It is, you become a student. You have to go to school. On a daily basis. On a daily basis. You have to go to school. You have to become a guard because you have to, uh, like a soldier, you have to guard your thoughts. Um, I mean, and this is every second of the day because 
people give you beautiful opportunities to react in such a wonderful, wonderful state. And so you have to learn how to program yourself and reprogram your behavior so that when that person gives you this beautiful opportunity to want to give them some, to express yourself in such a beautiful, uh, uh, um, you know, colorful language <laughs> that you respond differently because you're looking at them going, you know what? Uh, how are you doing? You know, I, I, because they may have had a, a hard day and uh, you and I don't know the circumstances by which they have caused them, you know, caused them to behave that way. But because you are on a different, um, I hear these young kids talking about this all the time, leveling up. You're on a different plane that you have the, um, the opportunity to respond out of kindness versus your flowery language by which we were so accustomed to utilizing before we started on this journey of self-growth. Well, and, and I talk to people all the time, and, and I cover this multiple places in the book, that you can only control you. Yeah. Regardless mm -hmm. of what you think, regardless of how powerful you believe you are, you have zero control over anyone else. You even have zero control over a baby other than where you put them down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they are in 100% control of when they eat, when they cry, when they do anything else. You have zero control. So for me, it was huge, huge to accept. I can only control me. So as you're speaking about, you know, when you encounter someone who is maybe not having a good day or just their character, their accepted behavior, their yeah. learned behavior is something that causes, you know, your hackles to raise up. <laughs> Say to yourself, which is what I do to myself, I cannot control them. I can yeah. only control me. So I'm going to do what I can do. And I'm not going to pick up what they're putting down because that's not my choice. I, I and then know. we allow them to simply be who they are yeah. without taking on the responsibility for their actions. And I want to say this, that includes your spouse, your children, your mm -hmm. relatives, anybody. You are not responsible for their behavior, period. End of discussion, including the four-year-old who throws a temper tantrum in the middle of Walmart because you have taught them if they throw a temper tantrum in the middle of Walmart, they're going to get what they want. Hmm. Now, what you have taught them is back on you, yep. but their behavior is on them. Yeah. Wow. I love this. Guys, I, I want you to go and get um, <laughs> get Leslie's book. I mean, I, Leslie, this is how I tell people about a book. It is a private consultation with the author. It is a time that the author is there exchanging the words, that conversation uninterrupted, where they are able to focus everything that they have once they are reading that book. And so I want you guys to run out and buy this book because from this conversation that we're having, it sounds like it's going to be a good one. I'm going to have to buy it myself because um, all the principles that she's talking about, personal growth and moving from one space to another, has been mentioned in this conversation. And she said it's in the book. So go get this book. Um, 
Uh, I've seen you have classes and stuff like that as well. I saw one of your free courses. Um, I want you guys to get in touch with, with Leslie. Seriously, man. Um, because this thing about growing and self-love is the most important journey you will ever do. And as she mentioned briefly a, a few seconds ago, you are not responsible for anyone else's but yourself. You know, uh, learn how to master yourself. There's so much power in there. There's so much freedom. There's a new world beyond that, guys. Um, uh, so um, I want to thank you, Leslie, for coming by Threads of Enlightenment. I, I had a good time. I'd probably be able to talk to you for another hour or two. Um <laughs> because this is so good. But I want to thank you so much for coming by. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Ken, so much. I, I could probably sit down and talk to you for hours as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I love your message. I love that, you know, you are encouraging people to, you know, seek out that enlightenment. We are all connected and we can all lift each other up. Yes, I tell, I put it this way because again, I, I used to have that flowery language that I was very skilled at using. And so I tell people that what we're creating is a tapestry, a tapestry of uh, knowledge, wisdom, uh, um, uh, from everyone's journey. And we are weaving this beautiful tapestry whereby people can partake of it, take out what you need and put in what you what you have experienced and so that we all can uh, uh create this thing that is so beautiful that when people see it that it is able to change this current state of uh our world that we're in from uh what we're looking at on tv constantly it's just uh, we can do better guys we can do better we can we can and thank you for being part of that thank you so much Everyone who's listening to this podcast, we hope to continually help you to learn how to embrace moments of darkness because it is in the darkness that we learn how to develop and use our abilities to truly see those parts of ourselves often invisible to us in the light. It becomes your responsibility to navigate through all of your trials to find out who you truly are and begin your journey to loving yourself, which is possibly one of the most difficult things you will ever do in your life. To love yourself and to find the real you. But always remember to enjoy the journey. Thank you for coming by. Please subscribe. And if you can support us financially, we deeply appreciate it. You can do this by hitting the heart button. Until next time, invite your family, friends, neighbors, anyone that you can. You can hear us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartRadio, CastBox, Overcast, and many more. Everyone who's listening to this podcast, we hope to continually help you to learn 
how to embrace moments of darkness, because it is in the darkness that we learn how to develop and use our abilities to truly see those parts of ourselves often invisible to us in the light. It becomes your responsibility to navigate through all of your trials to find out who you truly are and begin your journey to loving yourself, which is possibly one of the most difficult things you will ever do in your life. To love yourself and to find the real you. But always remember to enjoy the journey. Thank you for coming by. Please subscribe. And if you can support us financially, we deeply appreciate it. Until next time, invite your family, friends, neighbors, anyone that you can. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartRadio, CastBox, Overcast, and many more.